You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Well, good morning, everyone. As it's been said, Happy New Year. I'm excited to be starting off the new year with all of you this morning. If we haven't met, like Ethan said, my name's Andrew. I'm the student pastor here. And before we get into the message, I do want to give a quick announcement for the student ministry. So as of next Sunday, student ministry is back. I'm so excited. We have our 9 a.m. Sunday service starting next Sunday. So if you're a student um, in junior high or high school, I want to invite you to that service. We meet in the warehouse right now as we're finishing construction on the student side of the building. So I want to invite you to that. Also, midweek growth groups for the student ministry start on the 11th. That's Wednesday from 7 to 8.30. This first one's pretty fun. We're actually inviting parents and students. We're calling it the spring semester kickoff where we're going to be honestly celebrating what God has done in the past semester and looking forward to to what we want uh, for this future. So really excited for that. I invite parents and students out on the 11th for that. Now a few weeks ago, my son Emmett, he turned three. And I think I got him, at least for me, my favorite birthday present that I've gotten for him so far. It was a remote control car. He loves cars and trucks. And up until three weeks ago, he had to push them himself. And he was so stoked whenever he pushed a button and the wheels turned. I mean, he got excited. Within a minute, he was like, what can I jump? You know, like it was a good gift. The other kids in the house, they wanted to play with it. I wanted to play with it. Pretty excited about that gift. And and it's not just my son that loves things with wheels. My whole family has been fascinated seemingly for their whole lives with things with wheels. I mean, my kids got scooters, they rollerblade, they skateboard, they love wheeled things. And I think their fascination with wheels, it probably comes from me. I grew up riding bikes as early as I could. I rode skateboards and scooters myself. And actually, my first major life purchase in life was when I was 11. I bought a dirt bike. I know some of you parents are like, what? Your mom lets you get a dirt bike? I know. It's great. And she's a nurse. She let me get a dirt bike when I was 11. (laughs) So I saved up and I found a 1979 Suzuki RM60 in the classifieds in the newspaper. Some of you remember, that's how we used to buy things. Like, you'd look for used things in a newspaper. I did that, and I found this motorcycle. I went to check it out with my dad, and it seemed to work. Oh, sweet. So I, I bought a motorcycle. I crashed it many times, and I only injured myself a few times, I promise. I, obviously, I'm fine. And... I just, I think things with wheels are so much fun. I loved that dirt bike. Sadly, it died because it was very old. (laughs) I didn't know what I was doing whenever I was 11 to fix it. But yeah, things with wheels, I've always loved them. And actually, when I got to college, I found out that wheels aren't just good for toys and transportation. I actually found out for the Christian life, they're really good for transformation as well. While I was at college, I attended a weekly Christian event where they would teach us practical tools on how to walk with God. And one of the tools that they shared within my first few weeks of being there was something called the wheel illustration. Here it is. I'll put it on the screen for you. Just to be clear, this is a wagon wheel or a car wheel, not a steering wheel. The illustration breaks down if it's a steering wheel, okay? It is a wheel. And the purpose of the wheel is to to explain the structure of a God-honoring life simply and effectively. The guy that came up with it, his name was Dawson Trotman. He developed this in the 1930s. He's the founder of the Navigator Ministry, and he wanted 
to help people understand the main components of a vibrant Christian life. In fact, the Navigator Ministry, that was their purpose, was to help grow disciples of Jesus. So he came up with this illustration that he, he figured you could share this on a napkin if you're talking to someone to be helpful for them. He wanted them to understand the crucial components of a vibrant Christian life, a life that is marked by faith in God and the transformation that, that only he can bring. So we're starting a new series this week called Transformation in Christ. We'll be going through this diagram in a little more detail. There are five major components of the wheel diagram that we'll be looking at. The first part is the hub of the wheel, where Christ is the center. And then we'll be looking at the horizontal dimension, which really represents how we relate to other people in our walk with God. There's fellowship and there's ministry. And then we'll be looking at the vertical dimension. This is how we relate with God through prayer and reading the Bible. For me, over the past 15 years, I've found that the wheel illustration, it's, a, it's an extremely helpful personal diagnostic tool. It's one of those things to, to look at and ask yourself, am I doing these things? It's really easy to be able to look at the five components and say, yeah, I think I am, or oh, maybe not. Over the next few weeks, as we look at these different components, the different spokes of the wheel, I encourage you to use them as a personal measuring stick as we get a little bit more detail on those. But today, we're looking at the hub of the wheel. Specifically, we're looking at the two ways that, that Christ is like the hub of a wheel. Now, a hub is a connecting point. When we talk about trains and public transportation, a hub is a central location where lots of connections are made. Or if you're talking about computers, if you have a USB hub, that's where we connect all of our devices. And a wheel hub, it, it connects the wheel to the engine, and it also connects it just to the vehicle. It's, it's where the wheel gets power from the engine. So just like the hub is the center of a wheel, Jesus needs to be the center of our lives. We need for Jesus Christ to be the center of our lives. Paul, the early church planter, makes it pretty clear what it means to make Christ the center of our lives. Speaking to the church in Corinth, he says this in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He says, speaking of Jesus, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So he's saying Jesus died and it's really clear, it says, so that we would live for him and not for ourselves. There, there's this moment when we are no longer the center of our lives, but now Jesus is the center. This is a concept that we call lordship. When we make Jesus the center of our lives, we orient every part of our lives around him and what he wants us to do. Our life is now given over to Jesus. And this is a huge deal, and it's a lifelong commitment for us as Christ followers He's the focal point of our daily decisions and the leader of the path that we ultimately take in life. And for Christ followers, there is a moment when we make this switch, when we begin living for God rather than for ourselves. It's the moment when we accept God's forgiveness that was paid for by Jesus' death and resurrection, and we commit to live for him for the rest of our lives. I remember when I made that decision, I grew up going to church and I think my understanding pretty early on was Jesus is really important. We go to church. And actually, I thought most of the Christian life was about going to church. And then I realized that actually that wasn't what made me a Christ follower. I heard about God's love and forgiveness, and I came to believe that Jesus was the only way to know God and receive forgiveness for all my sins. And I decided to follow him. 
I'll never forget, I, I was in my room, and my mom prayed with me by my bed. I think I was eight years old, and I placed my faith in Jesus and committed my life to him. Now, did eight-year-old Andrew fully understand what following Jesus would look like for 33-year-old Andrew? I mean, I don't think so. I didn't understand that Jesus was in charge of the major decisions I'd make because they weren't on my radar. My world was pretty small, which is normal for an eight-year-old. I didn't know that Jesus would actually determine who I'd date, how I would date, who I'd marry, how I'd raise my kids, or what I'd do with my money or with my life. My world was, was rightfully small at that moment, but I can tell you confidently that eight-year-old Andrew wanted Jesus to be the boss of his whole world. And so that's when I decided to follow Jesus. I was eight years old. And this is a significant moment, not only for my life, but for any Christ follower. When we give our lives to Jesus, Paul actually describes this moment and what happens a couple of verses later. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. At the moment anyone decides to follow Christ, they are fundamentally changed. We are said to be in Christ, is what this verse describes it. And what this means is where you were spiritually dead, now you've been made new by Jesus and spiritually alive. All your sins are forgiven. You have become God's child. And to be in Christ means that you're, you're connected to him. Your future is now intertwined with him and the life he brings. It's an amazing thing that happens in the life of a Christ follower. But knowing that we still need a lot of help after we follow Christ, a part of being in Christ is that God himself, the Holy Spirit, comes to live inside of us. I mean, that's amazing. That's awesome. The Holy Spirit provides us with connection with God. He, he helps us understand what God wants. He begins to change our motivation to do what is right, and he gives us access to his resources to help us really learn to trust and obey God over a lifetime. Now, when the Holy Spirit comes in, he immediately starts to make changes, and this starts an internal struggle. Paul, describing this struggle that the Holy Spirit brings in our lives, he shares this in Galatians 5.17. It says, For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. It turns out that in this process of being made new, when you decided to follow Jesus, you kept something, and it's called the flesh. This is our, our natural tendency toward doing what is wrong. This remains with us until we die to go be with Jesus. As Christ followers, it's really lost some of its power, but it still affects us. And in general, the flesh motivates us to do what's opposite of what God would want. Before following Christ, the volume on right and wrong, it's turned down pretty low. The flesh and its desires, they really dominate us. We, we are highly influenced by our wants, our desires. We do have a conscience before Christ, but it can be pretty easily ignored. When someone decides to follow Jesus, the internal struggle takes on brand new intensity. It's like the Holy Spirit cranks up the volume on what is right and wrong. Now, when we sin, there's this siren blaring in the back of our minds on the inside telling us to stop or letting us know that what we just did was wrong. You can still choose to ignore it and do what's wrong. It's just a lot harder. Growing up, 
my mom had one rule with my dirt bike. I'm going to share it with you. It's that I couldn't drive it on pavement. Pavement, excuse me. And that makes sense because it's called a dirt bike. She said, Andrew, once your skin is harder than pavement, you can ride it on the street, which meant never, dude. You know, like, and it took me a second to be like, is that day going to happen? No. I either had to go out on my own, <laughs> be an adult, or I wasn't going to ride it on the street. And so the question I would ask myself was, well, how am I supposed to get my dirt bike to the dirt? I lived in a neighborhood <laughs> in a cul-de-sac. There were roads. We had some woods in the back. So I'd push my dirt bike like a dork to the woods <laughs> next to the street. You know, 11-year-old Andrew wasn't too pumped that I had a motorized vehicle, but I had to push it. But because I respected my mom, and the dirt bike was called a Suzuki Screamer, it was really loud, I knew I'd get caught, I'd push it, you know? I just, I'd push it. And one time, I was pretty new at riding dirt bikes, trying to figure out, like, do other people do this? I don't know, I'm the only 11-year-old in my neighborhood that rides a dirt bike, that's weird, right? I've met a friend on my football team, him and his dad had dirt bikes, they lived on the other side of our neighborhood, and we decided to go ride together one time, and I said, that's great, I have one rule, I can't ride on the street, they were like, cool, let's go ride. So we start riding together, I was like, oh, this is cool, like, riding with other people, this is great, and then all of a sudden, the dad just got on the street and drove away, and I was left with a split-second decision. Was I going to look really lame to my friends and just stay behind, and they'd be confused, like, where'd Andrew go? And I was like, I guess I'm going to go, so I chose in that moment to disobey. I got on the street and started riding my dirt bike. The whole way, I was thinking in my mind, like, oh, man, what is my mom going to do if she finds out? Actually, I was so distraught, I started crying in my helmet, which isn't helpful for driving safely on the street. And the siren inside was blaring the whole time that what I was doing was wrong. As soon as I could, I bailed on them. I got back on the dirt, and then I decided to go home. I pushed my dirt bike the rest of the way home the last couple blocks. I disobeyed my mom. The Holy Spirit was letting me know in real time that what I was doing was wrong. And you might think, I mean, what's the big deal? My mom wouldn't find out. Or maybe it was the other dad's fault. I mean, I thought I said, hey, I shouldn't ride on the street. But the reality is I didn't want to look lame in front of my friend and his dad. In that moment, honoring Christ was not my motivation. So I chose to disobey. I could have stayed behind. I knew how to get home. And that's just a simple example from my childhood when I was a kid. Life hasn't gotten simpler since then. As life gets more and more complicated, we continually need God's help to, to keep him at the center of our life, to navigate the situations in life. It's not just a one-time decision to make him the center. It's a daily commitment to honor God with our whole lives. And that's hard, right? It's a daily battle to keep Jesus at the center of our lives. And, and this is why I'm really glad for the second reason that Christ is like the hub of, of a wheel. The hub is connected to the power source. Through the Holy Spirit, Christ gives us the power to live God's way. He gives us the power. Because of Jesus' sacrifice for us, we're connected with God and receive strength to help us. Now, if we miss this part of the hub, we actually miss the whole wheel. If, if the hub isn't right, we miss the whole point of everything else. We desperately need to stay close to God so that we receive his help to face the pressures of daily life and stay faithful to God in the details, the small details of life. I mean, this is how it's always been for God's people. We see in the Old Testament, there's a book called Second Chronicles, and we learned about the lives of the kings in Israel's past. 
And so today, I want to quickly look at the history of King Asa. King Asa was Solomon's grandson, and he was the king of Judah. He started his life committed to God. All the nations surrounding Judah, they were in turmoil. We, we see that he was, there was war on every side. There was no peace, and, and all the neighboring nations had turned to worshiping false gods. In fact, a lot of God's people had turned to worshiping idols and false gods. And so in the 15th year of King Asa's reign, he took courage and decided to remove all the idols from his lands. Asa worked to repair the altar of God that had been torn down, and he wanted to turn the nation's devotion back to the one true God. It was a big deal. And because of this commitment to honor God in the middle of this turmoil, God prospered Asa, and he gave him 20 years of peace. In a time when it was described as utter chaos, he had 20 years of peace. In fact, later in life, after these 20 years, a prophet was sent to King Asa, and he says this, one of my favorite verses, 2 Chronicles 16.9, it says this, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. And the word strengthen in this verse, it means strong support. It comes from a word that means to like fasten something down and to make it strong. Imagine like the, the, the winds this morning, maybe you batten down some things. God is looking to bolster you up so that you can endure and stand firm. I, I love this verse. You get this picture when you read it that God is actively looking to help. Like a watchman surveying the horizon, he's looking to give strong support. He's committed to helping those who are committed to him. He's eager to help. His eyes go further than any watchman. It says they range throughout the earth. A, a verse that I memorized says throughout the whole earth, looking to, to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. He's scouring the world to give strength to those that need it. And for Asa, in, in the face of political and national turmoil, he chose to risk and prioritize the spiritual health of the nation and see what God would do. God gave them peace. I mean, that was a fully committed move by Asa in God's eyes. So the question for us is, like, what does it look like to have a heart that's fully committed? If God is looking to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him, how do I make sure I'm one of them? Well, I found personally that sometimes it's a little bit easier to start with, with what it isn't, to define something by what it's not. And so I want to look first at what it means to be half-hearted. Have you guys ever seen anyone give a half-hearted effort? I sure have. Maybe you can think of times when you've done that kind of an effort. Usually when we're half-hearted, we're giving minimal effort and attention. There's really not much focus or intention behind our actions. And actually, a few years ago, I came across a video that I think embodies being half-hearted. It comes from a sports talk show segment called Shacked and a Fool, where Shaq shows a compilation of some like sports fails. And the subject of the video that I want to share with you is James Harden's defense. Let's look. Number five, James Harden's defense. Sit back and watch this glorious montage. Oh, my God. <laughs> Come on, James. You're better, you better than that. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Come on, man. No, he's back on D. He's just going to stop him. Oh, my <laughs> goodness. Ole. Come on. Nah, knock it off. Knock it off. <laughs> Knock it off. Come on. No, it's, no, no. It can't be more. Otto Porter. Oh, Otto my Porter. gosh. Yeah, it's your fault. Raise your hand. <laughs> oh, man. 
Where is he? Oh my gosh! Are you kidding me? <laughs> I love it. So, I mean, that's what I think half-hearted looks like. I mean, maybe even quarter-hearted. I don't know if that's a thing, but he wasn't trying very hard. But what about fully committed then? So what does fully committed look like? Well, from the verse, the word that's translated fully committed, it also means blameless or complete, and it means that there's complete devotion and trust. A person who's fully committed chooses God's leadership and his ways regardless of what others do. There's, there's no sin that has come between the relationship between the person and God. God is a pri- priority and nothing is obstructing the relationship. God isn't about half-hearted effort, and he's definitely not about half-hearted devotion to him. If you commit your life to God, what you're saying is that following him is your life's pursuit. It's the goal. It's the thing. There's no area of your life that is off limits to God. He calls the shots. So here's how I actually define a fully committed life. As far as I can know, Jesus is the one in charge of my life, and I'm actively seeking to honor him in every area. If an area of my life is brought up where he is not in charge, I commit now to submit it to him. So not just right now, but in the future, I'm committed to him. If something gets brought up in my life, I want to commit it to him. And that's the attitude behind a committed life. And I mean, that's great, but if we're fully committed, why do we need to be strengthened? Why do we need help? Sadly, our hearts are crooked. Over time, our hearts can drift and get off track in our relationship with God. It's actually really easy to do. Time and circumstance, they really test our commitment to God. I, I gave you the, the fun part of Second Chronicles 16.9, and I want to finish the verse for you guys, because it wasn't the whole thing. Second Chronicles 16.9, again, this was a prophet coming to speak to King Asa, and he says, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Now the prophet delivers the unhappy news. You have done a foolish thing, and from now on, you will be at war. Wait, what now? (laughs) Didn't King Asa get 20 years of peace from war on every side because he trusted in God? What happened? Well, I think something happened in King Asa's heart during those 20 years. His heart drifted. His allegiance shifted from God to possessions and people. He relied on the money in his storehouse and the neighboring kings and kingdoms rather than on the strength God provides. The last straw came when King Asa took money from God's temple and used it to pay another king for protection. He literally took the money away from God and gave it to someone else to protect him and his nation. And God said, enough is enough, and sent a prophet to King Asa to let him know the consequences for his wandering heart. And I take this as a warning. Even if you've walked with God for a long time and you've, you've seen God do some big things in your life and you've trusted him before, you can still succumb to a wandering heart. The little distractions that can pop up in our life, they take our focus off God, and if we never get those back in line, we can, we can drift. If not corrected, what started as a small rift in our relationship with God can grow into be a massive distance between you and God. Personally, my biggest fears are my blind, my blind spots or the sins that can take me off of track in my relationship with God just a little bit. Things that might tweak 
my perspective and get me just slightly down the wrong path in my understanding of who God is and what he wants for my life. Maybe it's a comment that someone makes to me that about my appearance that gets me focused on how I look rather than something else. Or maybe it's a new thing that I'm just consumed at wanting to get, something that's, that's taken my attention away from God. Stuff happens all the time. The consequences of these sins aren't felt immediately. No one on the outside might even know that your, your heart's growing bitter towards a friend or that you've slipped into trusting your bank account rather than God. Maybe you don't even recognize it yourself. And if left unaddressed, those are the things that over time lead to a half-hearted commitment to God and major distance in the relationship. We actually have a, a term for this. It's called one degree of separation. I want to share some math to explain this. So I want to put up a, a, what's called a right scaling triangle. It is not to scale. You see that is one degree on the, the narrow side. The straight line represents a fully committed life to God. This is, you're on the straight and narrow with Jesus. And then the one going out at an angle, it represents a life that's just slightly off track. So as I did the math, if you, if you were to be one degree off and you walked a football field, the distance between the angled line and the straight line is about five feet. It doesn't feel like a big deal. You go out a couple, uh, a mile, that becomes 92 feet. If you extrapolate that to 100 miles, it's 9,216 feet. It's like you hop in your car, and you're trying to drive straight, and you're just off a little bit. After 100 miles, you, you're two miles away from where you're supposed to be. You can't even see it. I mean, in the moment when we get off track, a lot of times it feels like this one degree. You, you might not even notice. I mean, how often are we driving and we're just slightly off track? But by the end, you're almost two miles away from where you're supposed to be. Over, the, over time the distance between you and God grow. That's really how it is with one degree of separation. One of the most encouraging things I've ever heard, though, it came from a pastor for, from a previous church. He's walked with God for decades. Uh, I really respect him. And I'll never forget in a meeting when he said that most of the Christian life is getting back on track with God. He shared this one degree of separation and said, you know, most of the Christian life, in my experience, is just getting back on track. And and when he said that, I thought, oh, good, there's hope, because it's not, I'm not the only one who always has to get back on track, because that felt like my experience, too, was that, yep, there was a sin today that really got me off track, and then I have to confess it and get back on track. So when it comes to these small, these one degrees of separation, I would encourage you to, to figure out what typically gets you off track, or right now, if you are off track in your relationship with God, Figure that out as quickly as possible and then return to God. Course correct. Confess your sin to God. Turn away from it. Continue to walk with him. Ask for his help. I mean, we may have gotten off track a little bit. We might be really far off track. Regardless of how far, God is ready and longing for us to return to him. As that verse says, his eyes range throughout the whole earth. He's looking to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. He's actively looking because we always have the choice to turn away from our sin that's distancing, that's distancing us from God. We, we always have the option to return to God. I think that's so encouraging. That's so helpful that God, he's not there pointing a finger at us like, oh, you're off track. He's, he's actually longing for us to return. He wants us to be fully committed. He's even paid the price to forgive us. The question for 
each one of us when we're at this moment, when we realize we're off track, is will we humble ourselves and choose to get back on track with God? Will we course correct in that moment? So my question for you to think about is, is there anything in your life that's keeping you from being fully committed to God? Is there a question that you've had that's just kind of nagging at you, weighing you down, that you just need to get an answer for? Is there a distraction, like a hobby that takes up too much of your life, bad relationship? Is there a sin that you feel trapped by? You have a a messed up friendship or a habit of gossip, a grudge that you're holding on to, maybe an unresolved argument with your spouse that happened in the car ride on the way here. No judgment happens to all of us. Whatever it is, take the necessary steps to submit it to God before it slowly takes you off course and away from him. Are you able to say, as far as I can know, Jesus is the one in charge of my life and I'm actively seeking to honor him in every area? If an area of your life is brought up where he is not fully in charge, are you committed to submitting it to him? Is that a commitment that you have? It's a fight to keep Jesus in the center of our lives. And as we fight to keep him there in his rightful place, we we experience transformation. We experience the help that God brings. You know, the different components of the wheel that we're going to be looking at, they're a package deal. I want to encourage you to attend the rest of the series to see how all of these work together to help you grow. And as you come and listen, I'd say it'd be really helpful for you to, to actually ask God if he's in charge of your life and look at these categories to figure out if there are any areas in your life where he's not fully in charge. There's such a helpful personal diagnostic tool. I encourage you as you come back to ask God and and commit right now to submit whatever he brings up in your life to him. I think that'd be really helpful. You know, when we implement all the spokes of the wheel, we really do experience the vibrant life that God offers. And in fact, As we do all of these things, keeping Jesus at the center, it it helps to keep him at the center. God's given us these different areas of the Christian life to actually be a help and a protection for us in our relationship with him, to help keep him at the center. And over time, as you learn to take steps of obedience to him in these different areas, he will transform you more and more into the image of his son. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that You saw our state, our sin, our brokenness before you, and you took the initiative to actively come and take care of our biggest problem. Jesus, you have taken care of our biggest problem, which is our sin. I pray for each person here that we would, first of all, look at our lives and be honest with ourselves before you about whether we're fully committed to you. Holy Spirit, I pray you would point out any areas in our lives where you are not in charge, that aren't submitted to you, where you're not the one that's calling the shots. And I pray for the humility for all of us to submit those to you. And God, throughout this series, I do ask that you would, you would challenge us to take next steps in the different area that you bring up. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church Podcast.